Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Thursday. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy in talk radio of four and by you, the people. Live in the radio nationwide, streaming live throughout the world on the World Wide Web. Check it out, LeslieMarshallShow.com forward slash stream. And keep in mind, we stream live when we broadcast live Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. In this hour, great guests joining us, talk media news coming up later in the hour, and always your opinions, questions, comments, and concerns by calling us at 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Tweet, follow me on Twitter, at Leslie Marshall, and uh, like our fan page, facebook.com forward slash the Leslie Marshall Show. And uh, just sign up for our free uh, newsletter, send us emails, uh, read my Huffington Post pieces, my piece for Glamour magazine, and of course uh, for Fox News, all going to our website, LeslieMarshallShow.com. But right now, let's check a little thing called Ripped from the headlines. The Brazos River that snakes around a hamlet near the heart of Texas, it's called Horseshoe Bend, can be a source of pride, but also a source of pain. According to a local resident, most of the time it's really nice out there. But this week, the unincorporated community that's an hour west of Fort Worth is reminded that it is at the mercy of the river. Over the weekend, a little 10-year-old named Hunter Foster slipped into the rain-swollen waterway. He was fishing with some friends, and 20 miles downstream, his body was discovered. The river has been getting wider and wider. This is a man who lives a few doors down from the boy's family. He said, quote, that's why it took so long to find him. We've had new water every day. Hunter was the youngest of his parents' three boys, is one of at least half a dozen people to die this past week in flooding in the state of Texas. Many of the deaths have occurred along the Brazos River, the 11th largest river in the United States. It winds 840 miles through the center of Texas, the Lone Star State. The historic waterway surged to its highest level in more than a century southwest of Houston yesterday. A chance of thunderstorms through Saturday have prompted forecasters to issue flash flood watches for large parts of the state. That includes Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, and Houston. Texas Governor Greg Abbott declared a state of disaster yesterday in 31 of Texas counties that are afflicted and affected by this storm and the and the flooding. Uh, due to the water levels with those uh, rivers. Now, Brazos is already at critical stages. Authorities have been keeping a close eye on flood states. One emergency management worker near Dallas-Fort Worth actually tweeted a video of a hay bale being spent uh, down the river. Um, and uh, they, they said it's as high as they've ever seen it there. The flood-prone horseshoe bend. 
The river rose late yesterday to over 26 feet. Now, you might say, well, how high is that compared to normal? More than five feet above flood stage. Forecasters predict the river to crest near 29 feet today. Major flooding occurs at 27. So it is two feet above major. The next 48 hours is going to be a critical period. That's what the Parker County Fire Department is saying. Dozens of the community's homes, there's about 600 people in that community. They're already partially flooded, those homes. People woke up yesterday surrounded by water. They required rescue from emergency workers, reported by Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And they say it's the worst they've ever seen. Uh, They have houses on stilts, and within four feet of the front door, the waters have risen. People have lost their cars. People have lost anything that was outside. It's all been washed away. And, of course, as I mentioned, that family lost their youngest child's life. Um, People were loading valuables onto trucks and trailers. A lot of people are trying to get out before the river crest, but some residents who are already underwater are actually staying put, refusing to leave. Some people hunkering down. Some people live on the second floor. Some people don't want to move, don't want to leave their things. People that have antiques, uh, people uh, says that they don't want to leave. They can't trust people th- that are going to loot and, and rob them. They can't trust the thieves, no matter how dangerous it gets. Now, authorities were not ordering evacuations, but police did set up a roadblock early yesterday. They were allowing only Horseshoe Bend residents into that community. The move disrupted plans at the First Baptist Church of Horseshoe Bend. They intended on hosting a countrywide candlelight service for Hunter Foster's family. Um, Volunteers at the church still preparing candles yesterday afternoon for any neighbors who could join despite the ongoing flooding threat. And obviously only those in the community because that's all that's being allowed in. And there is a fund, by the way, online that has been started to help with Hunter's funeral costs. We will post that on my media sites. Um, I have two children and I lost a child in uh, 2004 uh, due to a terminal illness. Uh, Nobody should ever have to bury a child. I can't imagine he's just fishing with his friends. I do have to say, you know, when you have, you know, river levels like that and flooding, I'm not judging the parents. I'm simply saying, I don't think I'd let my kid go outside and be near that water. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, and, uh, I'm a helicopter parent, like I said, so I'm, I'm always thinking in that catastrophic mode as one. Let's rip another. There was a pivotal moment. And there will be (laughs) many more. Uh, The former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, is going to lay out in stark terms how Donald Trump, a TV reality star, is fundamentally unqualified to be commander-in-chief. Jake Sullivan told press, including Yahoo News, by phone, that, and he is the senior Clinton foreign policy aide. He said, quote, she would call Donald Trump out by name. She will offer offer a systematic and comprehensive critique of the alarming and bankrupt foreign policy ideas he has put forward. She will not pull any punches. Ooh, I can't wait for this, huh? Anyway, she will not, however, make a point-by-point defense of her handling of world affairs as Secretary of State or present-specific policy ideas. The Washington Post first reported plans for what Clinton's campaign is billing as a major address. Um, 
And actually, uh, she uh, she uh, didn't she already speak? 11.30 is my I thought it was going to be before noon. They kept saying it was coming up. Um, but this is one day after President Obama, um, you know, with his sleeves rolled up and dropping his G's like any campaigning politician, chalked up his role in the recovery from the Great Recession that we had in 2008 and also declaring Republicans unfit stewards of the economy. The uh, president urged voters to pick Democrats in November, quote, if you uh, if you yes, she's just finishing up. Thank you. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton. It was delayed. Uh, the president urged uh, voters to pick Democrats in November. He said, quote, if you really care about what the, the, this election and what's in your pocketbook, if you're concerned about who will look out for the interest of working people and who will grow the middle class. The unusual one two punch in foreign and domestic policy issues most on voters' minds suggested an attempt to shift the race for this year presidential uh, in the general election this presidential year um, as uh, you know to, to, to that kind of terrain as uh, Clinton hopes to essentially lock up the Democratic nomination next week. Uh, polls show her within two points of Bernie Sanders' local field polls, um, but real clear politics still shows her at a double-digit uh, lead. So it's kind of hard uh, which uh, polls to trust. Mark, 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 you love RCP, real clear politics, right? But don't you think um, the average is a bit askew because, you know, sometimes you have, I won't mention, some really right-leaning types of polls where it's going to be a right-leaning audience that's polled from that's really, you know, like, oh, she's only up by 1% or 2%. Yeah, you, have you have some like polls Rasmussen that are, like, up by there. 18%, you know? If you have, like, a Rasmussen or something that's clearly identified as a right-wing poll or some other ones, then... I think you have to take those with a grain of salt. And you can actually take polls off and then recalculate the average. So it's, it's a useful tool, but I wouldn't say, take it as the end-all, be-all, especially, as you said, in this election with some unpredictability. And uh, there is uh, no predictability, except for something I predicted, and many of you did as well. Let's rip another. <clears throat> House Speaker Paul Ryan endorsed Donald Trump today. Oh, what a surprise! <laughs> Ending an extraordinary public split between the GOP's presumptive presidential nominee and the nation's highest-ranking Republican office holder. He outlined his support for the New York billionaire in a column published in his hometown newspaper. He declared his goal to, quote, unite the party so that we can win in the fall. He said, quote, it's no secret that he and I have our differences. I won't pretend otherwise. And when I feel the need to, I'll continue to speak my mind. But the reality is on the issues that make up our agenda, we have more common ground than disagreement. Um, uh, you know what? Basically, that is Republican speak for I bent over for the Donald because my other GOPers told me I had to. Let's rip another. Let's rip another. Sorry, I'm not finished. <laughs> uh, an accidental overdose of the powerful painkiller fentanyl is what killed music megastar Prince. That was the medical examiner's report and conclusion and diagnosis that was released today. That's what it revealed. Uh, they said it was self-administered uh, by Prince, according to Dr. A. Quinn Strobel, chief medical examiner for the Midwest Medical Examiner's Office. Fentanyl, according to the National Institute of Health, is a powerful synthetic opiate uh, and uh, used um, uh, in anesthesia sometimes. However, it's more potent than morphine. It's a prescription drug typically used to treat patients with severe pain or to even manage pain after surgery. The autopsy result follow weeks of speculation that the 57-year-old singer was addicted to pain medications when he was found dead April 21st at his Paisley Park estate. His use of painkillers and how he obtained them have been the focus of a criminal investigation. The judges sealed all the records in that case and no charges are known to have been been filed. Prince Rogers Nelson died 
April 21st, 10.07 a.m. Eastern, 19 minutes after emergency responders arrived and tried to resuscitate him. As you can hear, this is one of the many masterpieces that he wrote, produced, and sang. We'll take you into break with that. Unfortunately, he died at his own hands with uh, a drug overdose of fentanyl. I'm Leslie Marshall. Happy Thursday. Good afternoon. Joining us is Lad Everett in this hour, Director of Communications of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. The CGSV seeks to secure freedom from gun violence through research, strategic engagement, and effective policy advocacy. They're composed of 47 national organizations working to reduce gun violence. More than a pleasure to have Lad Everett on the show this afternoon. Lad, good afternoon and welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, first of all, I live in Southern California. Yesterday I get text messages from my husband, stay away from UCLA. And, of course, I knew, as everybody knew then and now, uh, that there was a gunman, that over 40,000 UCLA students, if they were on campus, were in lockdown. This was in the engineering building, and it ended up being a murder-suicide. We're finding out more about uh, this uh, individual. I have so many things to ask you about this, lad. I could talk to you for hours. Um, uh, uh, for, for, first, of wh- first of which, as soon as stuff like this happens, I, I definitely see online a presence of very pro-gun, pro-NRA types uh, anti-gun control, uh, you know, less, you know, legislation and regulation types uh, talking um, about gun-free zones. Um, so I, I would like to talk about gun-free zones first. I know that's not necessarily the order of things that we had set up, but I think you can handle it. Um, so first of all, let's, let's talk about this. Most colleges and universities in the United States, and certainly all in the University of California educational system here in California where I am, um, are uh, gun-free zones. Uh, can, you, can you speak to us uh, about this? Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, if you look at overall the nation's, I don't know, 4,000-plus universities and colleges, the overwhelming majority of all those schools are going to have very strict regulations regarding the, the carrying of firearms. But I think the more important point here is that the, the argument the pro-gun side is making is entirely fraudulent, and it is because the uh, violent crime rates and the gun death rates in uh, our nation's colleges and universities, which are largely gun-free zones, is dramatic lower than for the U.S. as a whole. So when you, you know, even from the standpoint of originally identifying a problem, basically what they want to do 
is take a system that has been in a, really a dramatic failure in the country at large, which is allowing people who have history of violence basically open and often legal access to firearms, and uh, and that includes carrying weapons, not just buying them, and basically forcing that on uh, colleges and universities that have never wanted any part of such laws. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty bad argument to begin with. So, no, I mean, I, I don't think um, uh, that's the answer, and clearly uh, there's I haven't seen yet, um, other than perhaps Liberty University, a single school in the nation that agrees with this. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk, so I'm all, I don't want to go all over the place. Let, let's go back uh, to the shooting, and we're finding out more and more. This was a graduate student who uh, apparently had a lot of hostility uh, toward the victim. Now, we're speaking of this one victim at UCLA. Uh, there is allegedly another victim uh, in Minnesota, a woman. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, th- you know, this guy's a grad student. He nursed a long-simmering hostility uh, toward the victim, his former engineering professor. He actually accused uh, he's accused of stealing his computer code, according to police and local media reports. There was a list of people. Um, right away, people, I think people right away want to put it into some kind of a category. They hear a foreign name, they think Muslim, they think terrorist, the guy's Hindu, um, you know, they, they, they think, uh, you know, foreign. And then we hear about uh, the woman. Um, if a person is angry and takes a life, it does not necessarily mean that they are mentally ill, right? They could just have, you know, snapped, or this could be uh, rage that built and was planned out, which it seems to be in this case. Yeah, I mean, look, there there could be a mental health issues there. It's possible. I, I think it's way too early to say uh, at this point whether the shooter had a diagnosable mental illness. Um, you know, one I, one thing that we need to be careful of, and I think this is what you were hinting at, Leslie, is you know we don't want to stigmatize the mentally ill in this country. When you look at um, violence against others in this country, only four percent of it is directly attributable to mental illness. So you know, like you said, there's there's other factors at play here. You know rage relationships very often it's just petty arguments over things like money property um you know etc so um you know we'll probably get a clearer picture of exactly what went wrong here and um you know what drove this man to to such horrible acts but um it's you know i think very often we we have this knee-jerk reaction of blaming um uh mental health and um you know too often we don't wait for the facts to come in uh, very true. The facts that we know it so far are that the gunman was identified today as Minak Sakar. He's an engineering grad student. That's according to Officer Jenny Hauser, a spokeswoman for the LAPD. The victim in uh, California at UCLA identified as Professor William S. Klug, 39. He was a professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering. Uh, both bodies of men uh, were found yesterday inside an office in the UCLA engineering building. The motive remains unclear. Police do say they're going to look at the grades um, of uh, the uh, alleged suspect and shooter and the longer-standing relationship, poor relationship, between these two men. That was reported earlier by KABC-TV here in Los Angeles. And quoting unidentified law enforcement sources, KMBC-TV reported that Sakar apparently had a strange relationship with this professor and may have believed the professor, quote, misused his computer code. We'll be back with our guest. We'll be back with you right after this. Don't go away.
We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Lud Everett, the Director of Communications of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, is our guest. We are talking about the UCLA murder-suicide uh, that took place in Southern California uh, in L.A.'s Westwood uh, neighborhood uh, yesterday. Lud, thank you um, for holding, and welcome back. Um, I, when we look at statistics as to people reacting like this let's say allegedly he was ticked off that he felt his professor used his computer code and his reputation was at stake i i said hey i wonder if his you know girlfriend broke up with him andy's mad at the professor or if she slept with the professor you know your mind goes everywhere we don't know and that's all speculation obviously but many of us do speculate in our minds but just Mm -hmm. looking at the amount of incidents like this, not exactly, but you know what I mean, where somebody takes a gun and, as they call it, going goes postal, right? Um, you know, what what are some common denominators? Obviously, the gun. Is it the type of weaponry, where they're getting the gun, mindset of the uh, I- I- individual? And I say that because in order to prevent these types of things or reduce these types of things in the future, if we can't outright prevent we do need to look at some of those commonalities. Well, look, I mean, you know, obviously access to firearms is a common factor of shootings. And what we really should be looking here is not necessarily for history of mental illness, but what we should be looking for is a history of violent behavior, uh, whether that means violence towards self or violence toward others. You know, most people, I think we can all agree, don't suddenly wake up one morning and decide to go, you know, kill a bunch of people. Um, you know, these are almost um, all people who are in crisis for some reason, whether it's because of mental illness or substance abuse or a relationship issue or anything else. Um, and, you know, in, in our system, um, you know, very often it's, uh, you know, these folks are able to get a gun um, either through a private sale in many states where there's no background check whatsoever, or in many cases, some of them are able to go through a federally licensed firearms dealer and pass the background check because our screening just really isn't that thorough. It doesn't thoroughly look to see if people have had a history of violence. There are certain factors it checks for, and then there are certain other factors that might be important that it ignores altogether. So, um, you know, we have a system that for decades now has put a premium on making that gun sale, whether someone is dangerous or not, as opposed to being cautious and really safeguarding public safety. And the result is, um, uh, you know, uh, this nation having a gun death rate that's astronomically higher than that of other industrialized nations. Uh, I was listening uh, to, I think it was the head of the Brady campaign um, on a radio station here in Los Angeles earlier today. And uh, mm-hmm. forgive me if my stats may not be exact, but I think he said that approximately 86% of those who sell guns, gun sale, gun sellers in this country, are selling guns to law-abiding citizens who do not commit crimes with guns. And that it's approximately 5% of the gun sellers that are the problems um, and, and they feel that legislation can be done to track these types of sellers, the weapons they're selling, to whom they're selling. And after the incident yesterday at UCLA, uh, here in Los Angeles, they have put forth legislation to do just that. Can you speak to us about that? Do you think uh, this is effective and are those do, – do you concur with stats? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we know from some past studies that it is indeed a a small group of what uh, Brady and others call bad apple gun dealers that sell 
really a majority of the guns recovered in crime in this country. It's quite amazing. Um, you know, it is important to understand that the majority of gun dealers in this country are careful, careful about record keeping and following all other laws, but the laws in that area and the regulations in that area are so weak that those uh, who aren't so uh, law-abiding or uh, responsible are able to get away with uh, negligent behavior very often. So, you know, that is certainly one way to address the problem, um, particularly when it comes to firearms trafficking, because those bad apple dealers are responsible for so many guns that end up in crime in states with tough gun laws like California. So that's certainly one way to address the problem. But, I, but again, going back to who we prevent from buying a gun, I think we need to understand that under our current laws, federal and state laws in most states, um, you know, a lot of people with history of violence are able to get guns. And uh, until that changes, until we go back to the drawing board and uh, put in place a system that really looks for history of violence when you go to buy guns, um, I think it's going to be tough for even the most responsible of dealers to screen out um, some dangerous parties. Because remember, when someone goes into a federally licensed firearms dealer, a gun store basically, and undergoes that background check, the gun dealer is not seeing anything about their history. If there is disqualifying history there, they're not seeing a thing. Um, you know, it's basically a ping to a computer database run by the FBI. So the key thing is making sure you have any disqualifying criminal history or mental health history in that database. The problem, like I said earlier, is just that we're not screening uh, really in a comprehensive manner for history of violence like basically every other free nation on the face of the earth does. I, I want to talk about that when you talk about screening and um, when we look at uh, behavior or patterns of behavior. According to the Los Angeles Times, um, this uh, professor, Professor Klug, was a target of this man Sarkar's anger on social media for months. There was a post on March 10th calling the professor a very sick person who should not be trusted. Uh, mm -hmm. The paper uh, quoted the police and believed that the professor had, he, he said he believed the professor had stolen his computer code and give it to someone else. This is what he said online, quote, I urge every new student coming to UCLA to stay away from this guy. He made me really sick. Your enemy is my enemy, but your friend can do a lot more harm. Be careful about whom you trust. Now, like the LAPD said in their press conference earlier today, there was nothing to indicate, you know, homicide. And most of us, are, you know, are not psychologists, psychiatrists, or licensed clinical social workers um, that, yeah. you know, have degrees in behavior. Um, from that, you couldn't get that he would harm this individual necessarily. There's not threats of bodily harm and no warning that would be coming. Yeah, but I'll give you an example of a policy that's now law in California that that could have prevented a shooting like this had it been law in the shooter's home state of Minnesota. Um, California now has a law in the books called the Gun Violence Restraining Order Policy. And basically what that allows is it allows a family member or a law enforcement officer to go before a judge and petition to have someone's, uh, basically a loved one's, firearms temporarily removed from them when that individual is in crisis because of a mental health issue or for some other reason. That is a policy that could stop folks like the UCL, UCLA shooter because very often it's the people closest to these individuals that know something is wrong. Another recent example of this would be uh, the Houston mass shooter, Dionisio Garza, who killed a man at a car wash in Houston and then literally expended 212 rounds 
from an AR-15 doing battle with passing cars and law enforcement. He was in a mental health crisis, and his family was well aware of it. But Texas, of course, would have no such forward-thinking policy. So there are interventions that, that can be effective in these situations where people around an individual know they're in crisis and want to help. I think the problem too often now is you have those types of situations. I mean, how many shootings have we now seen where immediately afterwards we're getting quotes from family members saying, you know, something went south with him recently, we knew something was wrong, he was severely depressed, uh, he was being violent towards family members, and then we have law enforcement saying, yeah, we know who he is, uh, you know, we've had three encounters with him in the last two years and nothing is done. We need to move to a system that prioritizes public safety and begins to use some of this information and allows for interventions, even if it's only to temporarily remove firearms from individuals in crisis. So the solutions are out there. What's lacking too often is the political will. But I can say that in this area, California has certainly been a leader, and that is why of the 50 states, they have the eighth lowest uh, gun death rate in the nation. Let's take some calls. 8886 Leslie, 8886537543. Uh Michael uh is uh in the Bronx on line one. Michael, good afternoon. Uh quick question or comment for our guest. Hello, Leslie, and hello, Brad. I must congratulate you both on holding this discussion and showing the even the more importance of the need of gun safety reform. And the thing is that what gets me is the right-wingers who always want to shut us or keep us from having this necessary discussion. Anybody that has um, concerns of all this gun violence that's going on, and they don't want to, uh, they claim to be responsible gun owners, but will not hear us out. When you have Gabby Giffords, uh, who was um, a gun violence victim herself, she and her husband having guns, and they talk about the need for gun safety reform, they are even shut down. So I'm wondering that those that want to ridicule us or even attack us for wanting to have this all-important dialogue, and instead they say, more guns, more guns, aren't they encouraging more gun violence with their rhetoric? Okay, Michael, I think it's a fair question. Thank you. Uh, What do you think? I think they absolutely are. Look, I mean, you know, uh, you, you said it earlier in the interview, Leslie, that, you know, what you immediately hear from folks on the pro-gun side after these tragedies is more guns, more guns. And basically what they are telling people, uh, including people who are vulnerable in our society, because maybe because they're uh, in moments of rage or experiencing mental health issues, they're basically sending the message that guns are a solution to problems, that you solve problems with guns by shooting other human beings. Um, I don't know how you couldn't view that as part of the problem. We have in this country a subculture that uh, idolizes firearms, that literally takes them almost as religious icons um, in a very sick manner. And um, But, you know, in terms of solutions, getting back to what the caller was saying, you know, it's not rocket science. The reason that our gun laws are weak in this country is because individuals like that who fetishize guns have been louder with their political officials than uh, folks who care about gun violence have. The day that we begin to really raise our voices and get loud consistently with elected officials is the day our gun laws will really begin to change for the better. So the power to change this is totally in our hands. I think we just need to... Uh, figure out how much uh, is enough. And uh, my sense is that today, uh, for many of us, we've hit that limit. 
Uh, let's take another uh, call before we talk about some of these measures in California that they're putting forth. Robert in Charlottesville is listening on 94.7 WPVC. Uh, joining us, Robert, good afternoon. Question or comment for our guest? Hi, how are you? I good. just have a comment. I'm uh, listening to you right now, and one thing that just bothers me so much about what you hear from these right-wingers mostly is it's good guys with guns who stop bad guys, and then you see these people who keep saying, oh, well, they, they had mental problems. They obviously had these problems. I was with them, the people who shot uh, shot people. Excuse me, I'm a bit tongue-tied, just got off work. But it, it's a stark, it's a terrifying picture that everybody who uses a gun to shoot is bad, even if they have these mental illnesses. It's, it's horrifying. It's just this horrifying blanket statement you see in this hyperbolic world in general, just you look at politics, everybody's so hyperbolic about everything. And there is no black and white. There are definitely shades of gray, and more people need to uh, acknowledge that in cases like these. Okay, thank you. Uh, to our guest, any uh, comment, response to that? Well, look, I mean, you know, the whole good guy with a gun thing is so ridiculous. Um, you know, from what we know right now, the UCLA shooter was a good guy with a gun. I have seen no indication whatsoever that this guy bought his gun illegally or was a prohibited firearms purchaser. You know, from what, I'm, from what I've seen so far, he was a good guy with a gun, because that's what a good guy with a gun is under NRA parlance. It's someone who's legally bought their firearms and who legally owns them. Let's be clear, though, the bar is really low in this country uh, to obtain firearms. And what we've seen in most mass shootings, a majority of mass shootings, is that these mass shooters are, have been able to legally get their guns, again, despite a zillion red flags in their background indicating a history of violence. So, you know, and again, after these shootings, we see these things emerge immediately. You know, the family indicating there was mental illness or substance abuse or, or a history of anger problems. I mean, immediately emerging. These things aren't secrets. They're just not looked for. So the whole good guy with a gun thing is just ridiculous. Most of these killings are being done by people who legally bought their weapons. Okay, let's talk about the state assembly in California uh, who are invoking to pass uh, more gun control uh, bills, and there are many already in this state, as you know. Uh, Some of these bills include an expansion of the state's gun restraining order law, allowing courts to actually take firearms away from people judged to be a danger to themselves or others. And that goes to your earlier point about family or friends said, I knew, you know, there are five bills. They go to the Senate for consideration. They were introduced in response originally to the terrorist attack in San Bernardino that took place in December that fourth. 14 people's lives were taken as a result of. Now, the current law allows law enforcement officers and family members to ask a court to issue a restraining order removing guns from the person in question for up to one year. The new bill would allow employers, coworkers, teachers, mental health professionals, and school administrators to also petition the court for that same thing, gun possession restraining um, orders. Um, and there are some other um, issues. Uh, you know, some people would say this bill doesn't protect us. Does it? Or is it just one piece of this multifaceted approach to a multifaceted problem? Well, we're remaining, our organization is remaining neutral on that, that new uh, bill proposal. You know, we, I think our preference right now um, is to take the current gun violence restraining order law, which is really recently enacted, and, you know, see how that works for a few years. Get some data on that and see how that's uh, uh, functioning. Um, but, you know, California, you know, there's a lot of other things that they're looking at right now. And, you know, again, California has been very aggressive in terms of uh, enacting gun safety laws 
um, to reduce their gun death rate, and it's been enormously successful, um, particularly over the last 10 years. Um, they've gone from a state that was, you know, kind of middle of the pack in terms of gun death rate to a state with the eighth lowest gun death rate of the 50 states now. So a lot of these measures are having a really beneficial effect. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, too, you know, for the gun violence prevention side, you need to have your states that are being aggressive in terms of looking at uh, forward-thinking, innovative new ways to reduce violence, because we live in a system um, that the NRA, uh, you know, has placed so many loopholes and, and obstacles in our way to successfully regulating firearms that you need some folks thinking out of the box and uh, kind of pushing the envelope on that. So I think on the whole, California has done a fantastic job in this area, um, you know, in terms of how the gun violence restraining order policy evolves over time. We'll see. Uh, that's certainly not law yet. But I think the law that they have on the books now is going to have huge benefits in terms of uh, um, allowing loved ones of individuals in crisis to intervene in a way that is meaningful and which saves lives. Okay, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate it, Lad. Follow Lad on Twitter at Lad Everett, L A D D E V E R I T T. Follow the communications of the, excuse me, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence at, at CSGV, their website, CSGV.org. Lad has been our guest, Director of Communications of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. I'm Leslie Marshall. Quick break when we come back live from our nation's capital. Talk Media News, Bob Nay will be joining us at that time. Bob Nay rejoining us once again. Good to have him with us. Happy Thursday, Bob. Um, let's talk about Hillary's foreign policy speech. We knew she was going to bash Trump for being un- uh, unqualified. How much did she bash and how effective do you think it was? Did she do some good bashing there? Well, hello, Leslie. Uh, go, girl. I mean, <laughs> this was... And, and I well, want everybody to know, Bob, in case you don't know, is a former Republican congressman Republican. saying that. Well, this was feisty. I mean, this was... Man, I, I, I seriously was watching this, Leslie, and I'm like, what did she miss? I mean, she went down one of the most complete laundry lists done this entire election. Um, Trump has to be just uh, fuming. I mean, she just literally went point by point by point about foreign policy and the Chinese, and then she kind of threw in, you know, about golf courses. This isn't a golf course. This isn't a reality show. Um Wow. I, it, it went way, way. I thought there were going to be three or four bullet points, right? Yep. I typed my fingers off today <laughs> listening really? to it. Um, now, oh. now, now, how, uh, I mean, look, you know, I like her. I'm a Democrat. I'm voting for her. I've been waiting for her to be my president since 2008 is my phrase. Now, um, how, how effective do you think it is? Because Trump does well and his ratings go up when he attacks, but also because she's a woman, 
do you think do you think she came off as strong and presidential commander in chief like and gained some uh, support, or do you think there are people uh, that hated her more as a result? Just your opinion. Well, I think it's going to be a mixed bag in the sense that you know uh, she'll ignite a lot of people that don't like her anyway. You know, in that sense. Um, but now she might have been a little bit hawkish for the Bernie crowd. Okay. So that's one point there. But overall, uh, I think she has made it crystal clear that, you know, and Trump's going to fire back, but she's made it crystal clear she's going to just be out there with a baseball bat. And as much as he swings, she can swing. All right. Thank you, Bob. Bob Nade, live from our nation's capital with Talk Media News. Coming up, wide open telephones. Hope you'll join us. 888-6-LESLIE is the number to do it.